Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, will share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's Manager Meetings, Kim Liu speaks with Stefan Kaluzny. Kim is the president and CEO of the Columbia Investment Management Company, where she's responsible for managing the university's $11 billion endowment. 
She also recently received Institutional Investors Lifetime Achievement Award. Stefan is a founder and managing director of Sycamore Partners, a private equity firm specializing in consumer distribution and retail with approximately $10 billion in assets under management. Sycamore's sector-oriented strategy focuses on partnering with management teams to improve operating profitability and strategic value in their business. To kick it off, Kim and I discuss her due diligence process while at Carnegie and her upcoming re-underwriting of Sycamore at Columbia, both with an eye on her longstanding friendship with Stefan. We're going to talk about Stefan. And I wanted to ask you to start with, you met, as you mentioned, at business school. And I'm curious how that impacted your due diligence process when you eventually invested. Yes, I did know him when I was at business school. And I think that it helped actually my relationship with Golden Gate, where he was prior to starting Sycamore. Because at the time, there were many moments of angst there. And I had somebody who worked there who I could talk to and who always quieted it down. And so it worked really well. When he decided to leave and spin out to form his own firm, I tried to be very distant in the due diligence and say to people, look, I'm going to vouch for his intellect. I'm going to vouch for the fact that I think he's a good guy. Here are other things that I've noticed about him that I think we should pay attention to and do some work on, but I am not going to be actively involved in the due diligence process. And so the rest of the team took it and went. When there was a sticky question that they had a challenge getting the answer to, or when there was a term that they didn't like, then they put me in. <laughs> You're in. <laughs> I need you to go and talk to Stefan about X, Y, and Z. But I did try to stay distant from the actual underwriting. And as you look at the way your team worked, knowing that you're the leader, them knowing that you had a friendly relationship with them, how do you think you were able to navigate kind of a clean process to get to a decision about Sycamore? I think it was because I was the most critical, ultimately. I actually went in with many more lists of here are the things that we should be concerned about. Not to be overly specific, but has not managed a team before people who are new to managing teams will always think they can do better. They will have foot faults. Here are the list of foot faults I think that might be possible. Also, this is a person who is incredibly confident, not always sure he's going to be able to recognize the moments at which he's getting ahead of himself. Think about this. Here are some questions you need to ask. And also, this fund size, is this an appropriate fund size for a new manager? Let's go back and do some work on that. And what does that look like? So I think that I tried to get ahead of it by being very clear that I did not think this was a slam dunk. Here's all the things that I think we need to do a lot of work on. This underwriting happened when I was at Carnegie. It just so happens that he's also in the Columbia portfolio. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves over time because he's growing as an investor. It's a difficult space. He had a tremendous amount of success out the gate. And now everything is different about retail. And so I think a re-underwriting by everybody is going to happen. So it's going to be really interesting. So when that re-underwriting happens, how do you think about someone who's now had success with an organization that's working in a space that's clearly changed and potentially more challenged? It's constantly listening to lessons learned. If someone isn't speaking differently now than they were speaking 10 years ago, then they've not learned anything. It is going to be around how do you see the market differently than you see it before? How are you using the resources in the organization? You've made a lot of changes in the organization. It has grown significantly. Does that help you? Does that hurt you? I try to spend a lot of time 
talking about people's, especially Stefan, his risk profile now. He's a different person than he was 10 years ago. He's married, he has two children now. I think quite honestly, that is much better for him. But people's lives change. Success changes your risk profile. It can make it better, it can make it worse, but really trying to understand that. So we have to assume that it's a real full re-underwriting of the relationship because I don't want to be pro-cyclical. I don't want to be the investor who says, Retail is bad. I don't want to invest in it. I want to say someone's going to make money in this bad environment. Can it be me? And is this the manager that can help me make money in this? I don't want to just run away from retail. I have one more question, which is towards the end of your conversation, Stefan talked about potential product expansion into credit. How do you think about assessing your interest in re-underwriting the private equity strategy whether you'd look at a distressed or credit strategy and how those fit together. It's a different underwriting and it's not a strategy that's typical for us. And there are for sure managers that we give a lot of leeway to branch out into new directions, especially when we think that the other business gives them a leg up in being able to be successful in the ways that they're branching out. And so the story's yet to be told. I have to say that over the years, I've heard Stefan talk about other areas that he's thought about branching out into. I think he's very thoughtful about it. He'll come up with an idea. I think I can leverage this and I can be successful with this. He'll go down the road. If it turns out that it's not what he thought it was, you'll never hear about it again. So he brought up credit. I think he's exploring it. I don't know for sure that he's going to do credit, but I think that if he does it, it's because he's analyzed it and decided that there's an opportunity there. Because like I said, he's in the past named a number of things that he hasn't ultimately done. And that's one of the things I appreciate about him. He sort of tests the waters. He, he doesn't just assume because he thought of it that it's something that he should do. He does work on it. Well, Kim, thanks for bringing him in. And uh, we'll turn to the conversation. I'm so excited to spend some time talking with you and learning more about your story and Sycamore Partners. So let's start with your background. What influences in your life led you to be an investor? Do you have any family members who are investors or are you just the new Kolesny who is an investor? I'm afraid I'm a first generation investor. By way of background, I grew up in New York City. I grew up on Lower East Side of Manhattan. My parents had come from very different worlds and had come together, I guess, first in a cold water flat on McDougal Street and then moved over to an apartment on Grand Street which many, many years later I still own, to remind me of a place and time a long time ago. I was fortunate in that I went to a series of great schools, but my parents, my father was originally trained as a pianist, and my mother was a teacher. Uh, My father ultimately found that he couldn't make a living as a pianist, and so began programming computers in the mid to late 60s. And so in many ways, both my parents came from a more academically oriented background. There were no investors and no business people for a whole host of reasons. And so when I was in college, I thought I was going to be a classics professor. I was interested in in, and, and majoring in Greek and Latin. And that was what I wanted to do. And a number of events in my life came to pass that pushed me on a different path. My parents have both passed away when I was very young, and so I found myself needing to look after myself a little more than I might have anticipated. And 
that led me to a business job after college, which led me to choose to go to business school where you and I met. We won't say how many decades ago now. <laughs> and I found at business school that that came naturally to me and one thing led to another. But even after business school, I, rather than following a traditional path into the investment business, along with a, another classmate from business school, I chose to be an entrepreneur. And I moved to Chicago and started a chain of inner city grocery stores serving poor black and Hispanic neighborhoods. This was in the early 90s when there was a lot of discussion of food deserts and the inability to obtain fresh or healthy food in challenged neighborhoods. And we built that business from zero to a hundred and some odd million dollars in three or four years and learned more than I ever learned at business school, but ultimately found that it was not going to be my calling for the rest of my career. And so after six or seven years, left that in the hands of a management team and stepped away and moved to California and joined a brand new nascent leveraged buyout firm in San Francisco and began my investing career eight years after I'd gotten out of business school. So I was a late bloomer. That's really interesting. There's so much there that I need to delve in a little bit deeper on. But let's start first with the fact that you started out as a classics major, or at least for some part of your time. I'm assuming that while you were in college, you were a more liberal arts major as opposed to a business major. How do you think that's informed your thinking? So the classic speech is that liberal arts education enables one to think broadly about a wide range of subjects. And, you know, we're encouraged to learn how to think rather than to have rote memorization of specific skills. I guess I would say an early life and in the intellectual pursuit is healthy and good. I probably, from a dollars invested by age cohort, would have gotten to the investment business earlier if I'd had the training earlier. And I don't know that there are any special lessons that come out of a classics education or a history education, but there are things that I believe are universal truths that I think have come to be helpful in my business life. One of the things that I've learned is that success, at least in the leverage buyout business and the private equity business as, as we practice it, is all or entirely about the human beings with whom you are partnered. Our success rises and falls with our ability to identify and partner with and create an environment of success for great management teams. And we have done that over and over and over again. And whenever we haven't been as successful as we otherwise generally have been, it has been because we have stumbled with respect to management. There are universal truths that come out of any long classical education that I think apply and are helpful in understanding people. As an example, there was a professor at Yale named Donald Kagan who taught a series of classes around classical Greece and spent a lot of time talking about, in this particular case, the origins of war in Thucydides. Thucydides described the causes of war. Wars are always fought out of honor, fear, or interest. And if you take that and take a step back and take the drama of war out of it for a moment and think about people and candidly think about investment decisions and candidly think about how people go about leading their business lives or negotiating, framing many of those kinds of decisions around honor. How do I feel about myself? How do I appear? 
What do I look like? How does the world see me? Fear, I don't think that needs more description, or interest, interest being, do I make more money? Is it in my interest? And recognizing that those three very basic principles drive an enormous amount of human behavior. It's not that one walks into a meeting and describes it that way, but it is that one can stop and frame the world and say, you know, is this person operating out of fear in the middle of last year's investment? Were we operating out of fear? Is this person making this decision out of honor? Are they just making a good business decision because it's in their interest and so on? Exactly. It's not just there. We learned that in business school too, I think. And that's one of the complaints I've always had about business school, HBS in general. They teach you how to do the job you're going to have 30 years from now, not the job when you first come out of school. But all that stuff we learned there has so much to do with what we are doing right now and how we have to think about it to your point about how humans interact with each other and think about each other. I do love that your career path has been a winding road. And so many of us went straight at it and you started out as a consultant and then you were an entrepreneur and then you made the transition into investment. What drove those decisions? Was it someone introducing you to the idea of a change or did you identify a problem and think, I'm going to attack that problem this way? I just love to hear how you thought about each of those pretty significant transitions. Well, let's see. So there's some meaningful things and then there are some just the reality of life. So the introduction to management consulting was the first job I had out of college paid $2,500 more a year than the other job I was offered out of college. And $2,500 a year was $200 a month and $50 a week. And that was $10 a day. And that was lunch. And so that drove that decision. And I can't say I understood or knew much more. But I did choose to join a new consulting firm that had recently spun off of one of the traditional big shops. And uh, there was a draw there for me, even at 21 or 22 years old, for the possibilities of the new. And that was a draw. And at the margin, I chose a path where there was less hierarchy and there were fewer set and wrote steps that one needed to follow. And there was the opportunity, if one applied oneself and was skilled, to move faster. And I was drawn to that. The choice to be an entrepreneur after business school was, on the one hand, the madness of youth. And on the other hand, many of those same themes. I believed that we could do it better and that we could work harder and be more thoughtful about it and find a way to make a better mousetrap. This was a business we started in the 90s, and there were a lot of things about it. We had a focus on the Hispanic customer at the time that no one in the world really understood or appreciated was the fastest growing demographic in America. We were 20 years too early. You primed the pump for the people that came later. (laughs) That's right. We tried to save money on our telephone bill by having voice over the internet in the 90s when you did it over some sort of cable television thing. And that was way, way, way ahead of its time. Both of those would have been great ideas if I'd just stuck with those ideas, but applying them to the grocery business turned out to be horribly, horribly underutilizing the idea. But I was drawn to the opportunity to take an existing business and do it dramatically better. And it turned out in that particular case that it wasn't especially financially rewarding for me. But we did build a business and we did create jobs and we did make a difference in 20 some odd communities in and around Chicagoland. And I remain proud of that legacy. 
but I needed to move on. And so when I chose at that point, eight years out of business school, and as I said, I was a bit of a late bloomer along the way, I realized that the thing I wanted to do was to take the lessons of being a chief executive of a company and apply them more as an investor, being a partner to chief executives rather than committing my life to a single company. And I have found over my 20 years now in the private equity business that many of those lessons that came out of those seven or eight very challenging, very hard, very intense years of running and building a company remain true today, regardless of the size of the enterprise. And as you said a moment ago, the things they were trying to teach us in business school are lessons that we only came to appreciate 20 or 30 years later, that it's all about the people and it's all about how you interact with them and how you manage them and how you partner with them. And I learned many of those lessons the hard way as an entrepreneur and found that I could put them to use in the investment business and they were enormously helpful and surprising to me, remarkably scarce. The number of chief executives who continue to say to me, gosh, the way you talk about the business and the way you talk about your business is so dramatically different from the other five private equity firms that we've encountered remains a shock to me. It is something that we've built into the water of our culture here at Sycamore Partners. And I'm incredibly proud of the fact that whenever I talk to CEOs about our teams after the fact, they all say, your team was the nicest, was the most considerate, was the most thoughtful of my, the CEO's team. And those are the kinds of lessons that we've tried to inculcate that are different than hey, we've got a spreadsheet and we put the numbers on a page and they pencil out, press, print, and let's go. I laugh thinking about how you made the decision about that first job, counting down the pennies, because I did the same thing. And there's so many people who don't come from a background where they need to necessarily count down the pennies at the time. And they think about those decisions very differently. I had a really interesting conversation recently with a young entrepreneur who comes from a different background. And she said, I realized I had to add people to my team who were more privileged because I was so busy counting pennies because that was my history that I wasn't being sufficiently optimistic and wasn't reaching high enough. And then once I did that, I had so much more balance in my firm. And so you've gotten to see both sides of that, which is an amazing thing to bring into your firm. It's a very powerful and important insight that that sounds like relatively young entrepreneur has realized. God bless her for having captured that lesson early. It's maybe a different part of this conversation, but candidly, the single largest investment regret I have is having traditionally been a value investor, not having recognized the power of growth over the last five years and pivoting our portfolio to embrace those models at what appeared to me to be relatively high multiples because having had a history of counting pennies and being thoughtful and worried about what can go wrong and worried about falling backwards rather than the unabashed pursuit of risk. I'm not suggesting that's the case or that's the right answer, but balancing that has probably been the largest missed opportunity over the last three or four years in particular, where growth has particularly outstripped value or where there have been a lot of opportunities 
in higher multiple companies that have gone much higher yet again. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about Sycamore. This is like one of my favorite questions to ask. So so in 2011, you decide to leave your prior firm where you had developed your amazing investing skills and you built out your network and you decide to spin out. I know that's never an easy decision, but you did it. Did you always have a desire to found a firm or was it as a result of making a decision that I can do this differently? I always ask people, what things were you trying to correct for in your spin out and what were the unintended consequences? So I did found Sycamore with an eye to doing some things that were an extension of everything that had gone before the previous 10 or 20 years at that point of my career, both as an entrepreneur and as an investor. We were building on things, so there was much that was the same. There was one very specific set of both values and activities and approach to the investing business that were deliberately going to be different. We founded Sycamore as a sector-oriented fund, so we'd left a fund that was multi-sector and created a single-sector fund focused on the consumer and retail market. And to my earlier comments, my investing experience had informed me that real success in the approach that we have is marrying two separate things. So on the one hand, we believe that companies are organisms that have their own life cycles. They grow, they mature, they decline, they get sick, they get better. There are a series of things and they have their own life. And candidly, chief executives or management teams also have a life cycle of their career. And real magic is made when you marry the right manager with the right company at the right moment in both of their lives or in both of their evolutions. That means not only knowing the relevant managers, we have a list and we met them and we have outreach and biz dev people and so on and so forth, but developing a career long relationship with them to be able to deliver for them and spend time with them on multiple occasions and to be able to have them endorse you for the next person or to work with you across more than one deal or those kinds of things. And the previous firm from which I joined had a more traditional investment committee approach, which meant that we were less able to stand by our almost personal commitments to those executives in the same way because there was a, maybe this week the portfolio wouldn't be interested in that because we were rebalancing this way or that way, where the commitment to do great deals with great people and to know that we are going to be in this business with these people for as long as we're in business is an incredibly important point and an incredibly valuable selling point and has been true of, of a number of our investments where We've remained partners with our CEOs on multiple occasions in multiple contexts and across multiple deals. And that has created nothing but better investment results, higher returns, lower risk, faster return of money, along with candidly fewer person hours invested in the effort because there's so many things that you know and understand about each other that you can move quickly to make very, very informed decisions, and you know things about how you think about the world that allow you to, to make better decisions faster. So tell me what the unintended consequences are or what things 
have created new challenges for you. When I listen to you, I think to myself, yes, you get speed. Yes, you get familiarity. But do you possibly lose the transitions, the quick transitions, like the move from value to growth that you talked about earlier? So that's exactly right. And I spend far too much time examining this. But, you know, if there are things we've missed since we've founded Sycamore, it is that in the absence of having that close relationship with someone who is going to lead the company and who we feel is just right, we have not always chosen to take risk on just an asset or just a company where the company's fine or maybe the company's terrific, but management is not so terrific. And while we've been willing to replace management, we've more often than not had someone in mind And that probably means we haven't taken on as many projects as we should have, knowing that we would ultimately solve that problem. And that is something that we've had to get better at and get more comfortable with, that we will solve the problem after the fact. I know we've neglected a number of deals because of that or because we didn't have that pre-existing relationship with the manager and it was going to be a four-week auction at a high multiple. And we said, gosh, if we don't know these people, that's not as comfortable for us. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Right. I can definitely see that. So let's talk about a different element of the decision to spin out, which is one of the things I think about in my career is I loved the moments when I was an investor, when I was a security selector, and then I became a manager selector. And that transition was hard, but I did it. And then I learned to love being a manager selector. And then I became a CIO. And then I was much more of a people manager. And when you think about your decision to become a founder, how much of your day-to-day has changed from this incredible skill that you've developed as an investor to a manager of people and making sure you have everybody in the right spots and making sure that all the pieces come together? How do you stay involved? It's a work in process, Kim. (laughs) So I'm learning every day and trying to get better every day at the evolution that is the job. The fact is, at Sycamore, the most senior members of our team have been together for 21, followed by 16, followed by 15, followed by 14, followed by 13 uh, years. And so we have enormous continuity. And that allows me to have a great deal of confidence in my team. 
and has allowed me the time and space to be able to grow and mature as a manager. It is not an easy transition. Being a deal maker is a very specific set of skills, and I'm comfortable saying that I'm confident in what I was doing and how I was doing it and exactly the word that I chose under exactly the circumstances. And I was a sufficiently detail-oriented micromanager that every word was chosen just so. (laughs) And it is very hard to let go and let other people choose their own words and find their own ways. But back to some earlier themes in our conversation, what that means is I describe it as flying at two very different levels and just trying not to get stuck in the middle. So as a, if you will, CIO, it is being able to step back with the team and say, guys, I recognize that we kind of squeezed for a million here or a million there, but do we like this deal? Is this in the shape of something that we like? Does this play to our strengths? And therefore, should we move ahead with this? And if there's something wrong with it, let's focus on what that is and see how we can solve for that it's too big, it's not levered enough, it's too levered, whatever the things are. And then at the other end, it is to constantly be listening to the team and to spend time with the individual teams and then key in on specific things that they've chosen to do or that they've done where there's a lesson to be learned. Last night, I had a conversation with one of our team members about a conversation he had had with a banker. He mentioned two or three things. I said, gee, I would never do that third thing. There was one of his partners was on the phone with him. I called that fella at 745 this morning, caught him in the gym, said, this is a two-minute blurb. I know this is not the way to manage these things, but I can't do it by text or email. I've got to call you so you know that I'm not angry or upset, but I would never say that. He then said, I didn't, this other guy did, this is how it went down. I said, great, as long as the lesson's being learned across the team that we should choose to do it this way instead of that way, admittedly on this ultra-tactical narrow thing, that's the only way to teach them because it is an apprenticeship business and they only learn those things. And my job is on the one hand to be able to step back and say, let's go ahead and do this this is us. Or on the other hand, to be able to say, I don't know if I would have said it quite that way, which doesn't mean I'm 100% right. But it does mean that we're having an exchange about how would I handle this? Right. I appreciate the pain of this process because I experience it. But I will tell you, that it will make you a better parent later on because you go from being a manager to being an advisor and consultant. (laughs) I am in the consulting phase. It is very challenging, but this job has helped me with that too. So Sycamore is focused in the consumer and retail space, and that can be and is a cyclical business. But on top of that, it is going through tremendous transformation right now and arguably even disruption. Do you have a vision of where this industry is going? So yes, we do. We have an investment framework that we think about, which is that consumer spending remains 65% of US GDP, more or less. And depending on how you measure it, retail is five or $7 trillion business. Uh, If you throw in consumer products, you get to even more than that. And we think that Consumers will continue to think about the world in three ways. 
they will think about things as brands. And brands are an indication of our shorthand for a set of attributes that they've come to love. And that doesn't mean that brands last forever or that they're never new ones or things can't change, but brands become powerful sources for a consumer shorthand to either say something about themselves or to make a purchase decision. This thing provides me this utility in this way, but they are powerful shorthands for things. Most human beings don't just go in and think about it as a four-wheel thing with an engine with so many horsepower and seats that recline like this and have air conditioning. It's not the way they think about it. They think Volkswagen, Audi, Mercedes-Benz, and each of those things means something to them. So we think about brands, and that's a big part of our business. We think about distributors. Amazon is a distributor, but Kroger or Safeway is also a distributor. And I would argue that Home Depot is a distributor. So while many of those businesses are thought of as retailers, we think of them as businesses that are generally in the business of taking other people's products and getting them into consumers' hands. There's enormous change going on in that market. And we are firm believers that the consumer lives here. As a general matter, she wants what she wants where she wants it. And most of the time, that is on the phone, and some of the time, that is physical. And every business needs to be present where she wants to be in the way that she wants to be there. And we think that companies ignore that or are slow to embrace that at their peril. Now, we do believe in a balance of that, which is that the world being entirely digital is not 100% of the future. The pain and dislocation, particularly in retail, particularly over the last five years, is real and true. And there has been more change in American society in many ways, anytime since the 20s. But people still want to go places and do things and touch stuff physically. And the interaction of those physical experiences with the myriad of conveniences that are provided by the power of this instrument, the cell phone, we think that combination is incredibly important. Those two things, brands or distributors, are the way that we think about the consumer and retail world. And we think many of the mistakes that are made are when people either confuse a distributor for a brand, leaving aside some of our own missteps in this area, but department stores valued as brands when in fact they were distributors, as an example, and not thinking of themselves as distributors, but as the brand itself is the kind of misstep that's gone on. The world as you describe it is clearly more bespoke and personalized to people's individual needs, which requires an enormous amount of technology to make that possible. Do you think, like everything else, that technology is eating the world? Is technology eating consumer and retail in ways that has made you have to rethink how you do your business? We don't think it's eating. We think it's enabling. As an example, we, seven years ago, eight years ago, bought a company called Hot Topic. Now, some will chuckle and admit only to themselves that they know what Hot Topic is. But Hot Topic was the ultimate symbol of the mall rat of a certain period in the 90s and early aughts. And we acquired that business recognizing first that it was two businesses, Hot Topic and another business called Torrid. 
which really had nothing to do with Hot Topic, but embraced large size apparel and body positivity in a moment when that wasn't, if you will, a current subject. And we recognized that this company was two companies and that both of them needed to evolve from being traditional mall-based specialty retailers to being something very different. EBITDA, when we acquired the two companies together, was about 65. We did it as a traditional LBO. We invested $250 million. And based on the market value of those two companies today, which we still own, one has gone public, the other has grown massively. We've made just short of 16 times our money on a $250 million equity check. That's not supposed to happen in the LBO business. That's not supposed to happen with a mall-based specialty retailer. But in one case, the business is now 70-odd percent on the web, but has three times as many stores as it used to have, where the stores are the single cheapest source of customer acquisition. She loves the product, and she buys the vast majority of it with her phone, but she still loves coming to the store to try it on. And in the other case, where people are effectively fans, Hot Topic is the seller of pop culture, pop culture anything, they embrace their fandom on the web, but they want to go see each other at the store and be together there. And so our stores are growing even faster than our web sales, and both right now are growing in the 60s and 70s over 2019. They're staggering numbers, but we've embraced influencers in Hot Topic in a way that has evolved from even three years ago where we had embraced traditional social media, Facebook and Instagram. And that had evolved from paid search of Google and, you know, God forbid, Yahoo and other things of years and years ago. Technology has allowed us to grow profits in that mall-based specialty retailer sevenfold over seven years. It is amazing. More amazing for someone who considers themselves a value investor. <laughs> and we returned 50% of the investment in six months because we improved profitability because as value investors, we understood that. That made us comfortable. Then we said we have tigers by the tail, two tigers by the tail, and we're going to invest for them to grow. And in partnership with both management teams, they've been nothing short of extraordinary. We would be remiss if we didn't spend a little bit of time talking about Staples. It is in so many ways such an iconic Sycamore deal. I would love for you to share with our audience how you guys thought about that. It clearly was not an investment that a lot of people thought was worth what you guys paid for it. And for sure, just they were just scared of the whole concept of it. So how did you think differently? So it may go back to the beginning of our conversation with that liberal arts education, which is, gee whiz, let me just see what this is rather than live by the power of my perception. When we acquired Staples, it was a $17 billion company and necessity was the mother of invention. We had a $2.5 billion fund at the time. And so we needed to think about it as not this gargantuan company, but as something other than that. And so we looked at it and said, gosh, Staples, power of perception, this is this retail concept that no one has been in for the last five years and where the stores have been declining and everything you can get there, you can get at Amazon and isn't that easier and so on. And we stopped and said, gosh, 
this company had been an extraordinary company, right? This is a company that's grown from zero to 20 some odd billion dollars in sales in 10 or 15 years in the late 80s and throughout the 90s and had continued to succeed throughout the 2000s and had just been stalled. And we recognized that Staples was not the company that appeared in people's imaginations. And so we divided it into three parts, maybe back to our classical education like Gaul. Caesar divided Gaul into three parts. We divided Staples into three parts. <laughs> we recognized that Canadian retail was completely different than retail in the U.S. and that Staples Canada was a wonderful business and is doing super well and has been very successful for us, even through the pandemic and the crisis. We recognized, on the other hand, that the Staples U.S. stores needed to be hived off and put into their own business because the years of sliding sales suggested that they were going to continue to decline and would ultimately need to be closed or liquidated. And then we recognized that the vast majority, 65% of the sales and 75 or 80% of the profits were really a B2B services company that was a logistics company to be Al Courant that delivered 200 million packages a year overnight to the Fortune 1000. So 200 million packages a year overnight when Amazon was still on two-day shipping. Um, and we were already doing it with more than 50% of the volume on our own trucks. So we were already a last mile delivery vehicle. And within that, we would not just bring it to the package room, but we would actually go not just to the last mile, but to the desktop. And so we had a delivery mechanism and a logistics business that we knew was completely different and unrelated to the fact that it happened to sell office products. The 200 million packages a year and 40 DCs and thousands of trucks can deliver anything we want. And we need to find the right way to put more product through that pipeline. But we believed in a world that was evolving to next day delivery of lots of things that a $10 billion next day delivery business that was making three quarters of a billion dollars a year would have real value. So... Our approach was first to divide it into three parts, Canada, retail stores in the U.S., and the B2B delivery business, and then to recognize that each of those had their own profit opportunity improvement. And so in the interest of the time that we've got here, we grew profits in all three segments dramatically. We remained very modestly levered so that when the downturn hit, COVID has hit our business quite hard because offices have been closed. But when the downturn hit, we had sufficient liquidity and sufficient profitability to be able to weather the storm, to be in a position that when people do return to offices, we are able to service them in their offices, but that through staples.com, if they're going to work at home, we can still service them at home. And the miracle of miracles through all this is while we had written underwritten for Staples U.S. retail stores to decline in profitability from approximately 200 million to zero. This year, Staples retail stores will have the same 200 million of profitability that they had four years ago when everyone forecasted zero. And that is still in a pandemic where we're underperforming. So there was an opportunity for value in the retail store network. There was an opportunity for growth in our B2B business. 
And there was an opportunity, candidly, for both in Canada. And that allowed us to de-risk the investment very quickly. And while I would have much rather, for many reasons, obviously, uh, not have had the last 18 months of COVID, we believe that we will continue to have a strong B2B delivery business coming out of COVID and two much better than anyone would have expected retail businesses. I have to ask you the question. I know that private equity firms grow or die. There's not an option. You want to incent people. You want to attract the best talent. You have to make some decisions about how you are going to grow. So how do you think about that? Is it a larger fund size? Is it moving into adjacencies? Is it a decision to go to new geographies altogether? How are you envisioning that? You're a 10-year-old firm now. When you are a 20-year-old firm, what does success look like? So 20-year-old firm success is Sycamore Partners is known as the dominant consumer and retail investor, certainly in North America. And I don't feel the need in a $20 trillion North American economy to go overseas. We might, but I don't feel that need. But we should be known to CEOs and to investors as the single best partners to invest in a rapidly changing, a continuously rapidly changing consumer and retail environment at scale. That is success for us. I believe that that is a continued focus on our flagship funds. I believe that we should continue to raise, in a perfect world, successively larger core funds. But at this point, we don't have to grow dramatically to make our business work. We need to continue to grow and to continue to develop. But we have a pipeline of young people that are coming along. And we have plenty of room in our partnership. We were very, very lean through funds one and two. And so I don't think we need to be a $20 billion fund, but this size and modestly larger is the right zip code for our main fund. And that ought to be our vehicle. The companies we buy are generally in this size zone and we don't need to just go do bigger for its own sake. Having said that, I do think that there are extensions. So the market has evolved and While we are not exclusively a distressed company investor, as I highlighted earlier, we've made more money in growth than anything else, but we are willing to take on challenged or broken companies. And the market for those companies has evolved. And there is a need now to be more vertically integrated. We need to have active participation in the distressed credit markets to be able to take control of companies at an earlier stage because they are not being sold in bankruptcies, they're being bought pre-bankruptcy. And we did it last year with a company that we bought called Asina, where we took a position and bought 10 or 15% of the debt. We were part of the credit syndicate that led the company into bankruptcy. We then acquired the company from all the other credit investors, which were otherwise gonna take possession. But that early toehold stake became an important part of buying that company. And the ability to do that as both a debt investor and a private equity investor um, is vertical integration that I think is important. Might that lead us to having our own credit funds? Yes. Might we need to manage the relevant conflicts between those things? Yes. But other successful investors look to Apollo and others have done that very, very well and grown their platforms that way. And I think Sycamore can do that and can do that very, very effectively. Do you think that you're going to have to 
create the structure of your team differently at that point? Or do you think that your team is built for this? We need to supplement the trading and debt skills because that is a business of many decisions with imperfect information rather than few decisions with, in a perfect world, perfect information. I believe that those teams need to be different and need to be separate because private equity teams need to not lose their orientation around more perfect information. And I believe that credit decisions are both a set of skills, the trading skills, where's the debt, where does it sit, how do you pay for it, how do you source it, etc., are different. And I believe that the many small bets to find few large is a different set of skills. And so we would recruit in the very best people on that side and bring to them all of the information advantage that we have from the private equity business to give them an even bigger edge and more alpha as credit investors. Right. Well, I can't wait to see what comes next. It would not be a capital allocators podcast if we did not end with some closing questions. So let's just transition to that. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I always fail at this question. So I don't play golf. I don't play cards. I don't gamble. I don't have any hobbies. But I do have a four-year-old and a four-month-old. And having not learned to do many of these things myself as a child, circumstances not permitting, I am trying to learn, along with my four-year-old, to fish. And to have that be something that we can do as an older father, candidly, I want to be able to do it for every day for the rest of my life with my boys and maybe one day girls, if we're lucky, God willing. And so my hobby to be is to fish. But for the moment, 100% of my time and effort is either work or putting my boys to bed and reading them stories or fixing garbage trucks or doing the things that dad needs to do that apparently nobody else can do. So what is your most important daily habit? So I mentioned earlier, my parents both passed away when I was very young. And candidly, Kim, I say a small prayer to say thanks for the health of my wife and my boys. And I suppose by extension, myself too. And I do it every day and you can't lose sight of it. And nothing is more important than that. And so uh, that would be my daily habit. What is your biggest personal pet peeve? All right, it's got to be something computer related. <laughs> I'm probably a little obsessive compulsive, so there are probably a lot of pet peeves. But the fact that my computer changes without my permission, <laughs> that's my pet peeve. That like I come back and it's done something to itself. I can't even bark at the IT department. It's done something to itself and everything's not exactly the way it was yesterday when I left it. And it didn't ask me. That's my number one pet peeve. I love that. What is your biggest business or investment pet peeve? Jargon, double speak, and code. So one of my rules that came out of the entrepreneurial experience is most of the time what I say and what you or any person, what one hears, someone else hears, are different. So 50% of the time, what I say and what you hear are just different. That we decide to compound that confusion by speaking in tongues, investment bankers having code words for 
we have a handful of people in the process. Is that three or is that four? Like <laughs> you told me it's a handful and you won't tell me that it's three or four. like it just tell me it's three or four. But why make the world more confusing than it needs to be when you're trying to actually convey information to me? It doesn't make any sense to me. Which two people had the biggest impact on your professional life? There are too many. I would need to give credit to, candidly, my partners at Sycamore, without whom I could not have accomplished anything. But there are two, in my case, father figures, I suppose, in the business world. Don Marin, who has known me since I was a teenager and was enormously influential in my life, a longtime chairman of Payne Weber and a civic leader here in New York City, and who we lost a little more than a year ago, sadly. And then a different guy who remains a dear friend, Michael Weiss, who was the CEO of a company that I acquired 15 years ago. We had no pre-existing relationship, but I knew he was the right guy. And he catapulted that company to massive success and has remained a friend. He's on boards now 15 years later. But when I needed to introduce my now wife and then girlfriend to someone in order for her to become my fiance, I introduced her to Michael and his wife, Arlene. That's wonderful. And so over 15 years, Michael has been a friend and a counselor and a guide and yelled at me for like, I'm not any good at pop culture, but there's a song about putting a ring on it or something like that. <laughs> and, yeah. and Michael, who is old enough to be my father, knew this song in a way that I didn't and said, listen to the song. Listen, I'm very concerned that you do not know a Beyonce song, but we get, we'll talk about that later. Okay. What teaching from your parents most stayed with you? Not that I haven't forgotten it on occasion, but my mother's originally from Houston, Texas, and Southerners have a way with things. But catching more hot flies with honey than you do with vinegar is one that serves us well. The world would be a better place if we all lived that way. Yeah, for sure. What life lessons have you learned that you wish you learned earlier in your life? That is a lesson of late parenthood and late marriage. Patience. My four-year-old is teaching me patience and calm in the face of things that I may not understand or appreciate. <laughs> and the power of patience in the face of that for candidly a very intense and highly strung guy with someone with whom I have to interact for the rest of my life, God willing, has taken the intellectual lesson of patience. This is a good thing. You should do this and made it something that you feel. And that, in my experience, is one of the most powerful ways as an older person to change habits. And the exercise of patience is about forming the habit of being patient. It's not knowing after the fact that you shouldn't have been more patient with that waiter or that taxi driver or whomever, but it is the habit of knowing that you will always feel better having been patient with them and having an unavoidable proximate person that you love more than anything in the world with whom you have to be patient has helped me exercise that muscle. 
It has been my pleasure to spend this time with you and to learn a little bit more about you and your firm and just to share stories. I am so thankful that we got to talk. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me to join and to have this conversation. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. Thank you.